pastor's brother, Brian Harrington. Um, so back to Mark chapter two. They just didn't know any better. Sometimes my favorite people are the ones who just don't know any better than to be themselves and just be excited about whatever it is they're doing. Now, I have a track record of having beginner's luck. Whenever I try something for the first time, I'm usually pretty good at it. And I think the reason why is I just don't know any better. I remember the first time as a college student, some friends asked me to play golf. I assume we've got some golfers in the room. And the thing about golf that we all know best is that golf's really hard and it's really frustrating. And the very first time I played golf, I had, I had several pars. I hit one or two birdies. And my friends could not imagine that it was actually my first time ever playing golf. As a matter of fact, we met up with some other guy on the course. And he thought we were trying to take people's money by pretending, hey, this guy's his first time. Do you want to play us? But it really was my first time. And so, you know, I remember thinking for about a week or so, you know, maybe golf is my thing. And so I went out really confident the second time. It turns out it's really hard and I'm really bad. I just had beginner's luck. I just didn't know any better. Um, it kind of reminds me of the time that uh, this was a couple of years ago, we had somebody who was joining our church. And again, they were brand new. They didn't know any better. And they asked me point blank and they were completely serious. Brother Deke, how much money does it cost per month in order to become a member of the church? And I thought to myself, two things. Number one, it's not how it works. But number two, that's not a bad idea, right? That's not a bad idea. And with the cost of inflation, right? I mean, we really could bring in some nice tithes and offerings. What we're going to encounter in Mark chapter 2 today is some people that just didn't know any better, right? They had a friend. He was a paralytic. And they didn't know any better than just bringing to Jesus. So let's read Mark 2, and uh, we'll read the first 12 verses there, and then I'll share with you what I think are some important subjects that this passage highlights. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And so many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door, and Jesus was preaching the word to them. Don't let these words just be the words that set up our passage. Let's see if we can use our imaginations this morning and picture with me the scene. Can we feel the building sense of excitement? Jesus' ministry was brand new, right? Here was this man who was teaching like no one had ever taught before, for whom people were laying down their lives, dropping everything, and following him. And here now he's at a home. It's probably Peter's home. It would sort of become a base of operations for Jesus in this part of his ministry. One commentator described the scene this way. He said, the beauty of his voice, the charm of his manner, the tenderness and the love of his countenance, it must have come to this weary, sick group of people as a breath of heaven. And it was. Jesus it says in verse three, so they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. You could almost picture a stretcher of sorts. Maybe you've seen a sporting event where someone was hurt on the field and they couldn't get up. And so these four volunteers come out with a stretcher, each holding a corner of, uh, of, uh, of that uh, device. And they set the man on it and carry him off. This would have been very similar to that. It says in verse 4, when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Now that comes as a surprise. And when they'd made an opening, 
they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes, okay, these were religious experts, kind of like a biblical scholar who worked in a university in our day or something like that. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this, and you can bet on that. They had never seen anything like Jesus. Would you bow with me as we pray and ask God's blessing on this sermon? Father, Lord, we ask you now, we have read your word, and now as we think about it, Lord, as we sit under the instruction of your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, who gave breath and life to this story, would you speak to us today? And God, may this sermon not just be words on a page or words from the preacher's mouth. God, may it be your word. Speak, Heavenly Father. We are listening. This we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Church family, let me share with you four subjects that I believe are highlighted in this story. The first subject is that of Christian friendship. Now, the story doesn't make a lot of this, so we won't make too much of it, but you have to consider these four guys who brought their friend to Jesus. That's what being a Christian friend is all about helping bear the burdens of your friend and ultimately bringing your friend to Jesus. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 27, 10 says, do not forsake your friend. I think one of the things that is lacking in our day is a good understanding, a good practical theology of being a Christian friend. So let me share with you three things that are true about real Christian friends. Number one, we help each other. That's what Christian friends do. We help one another. We don't just feel bad for each other. We don't just send thoughts and prayers, but we grab the corner of the stretcher and we help our friend carry them where they cannot carry themselves and taking them to Jesus. Listen, we can't always solve all the problems of the people who are close to us in our life. Sometimes we feel their problems more deeply maybe than we even feel our own because we hurt for them. We empathize with them. But here's what we can do, right? We can lift them up a little bit, right? They're carrying the burden. We can't carry the burden, but we can lift them up for a little while and just help them, letting them know we care about them, letting them know that we love them. So we do that for one another. Good Christian friends help 
one another. Secondly, a good Christian friend does not hide their faith. And here specifically, I'm speaking to a particular person in a particular kind of, of context. All right, if you're in an environment with people you work with or that you live near as neighbors or that you see each other at the ball fields or some local business or some other a school or some event and you see each other, right? A good Christian friend doesn't hide their faith but puts it out on display because that's what our friends need most from us. When these four friends came to the house where Jesus was, when they dug a little hole in that primitive roof and when they lowered their friend down, what is Jesus' response? Jesus, Jesus doesn't wipe the debris off of his head and say, hey, what are you guys doing? It says when Jesus saw their faith. Now, why did he see it? Because they didn't hide it. They put it on display. And one of the greatest ways to show our faith is through our concern for the lost and for the broken and the measures that we take to reach them and to bring them to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, listen, your life with me is like a light. Don't hide your light, right? Let people see it. Put that light out there where they can see it. So we don't hide our faith. How else, though, can we be a good Christian friend? Well, quite literally, we need to carry people to Jesus. That's what these friends did. They heard there was a man in town who could make a difference in their friend's life. When nothing else could touch the brokenness in their friend's life, they said, let's carry him to Jesus. Now, we carry our friends to Jesus through evangelism, right? Just sharing the gospel message through encouraging them to take their next step closer to the Lord. We carry people to Jesus simply by doing things such as inviting them to church or inviting them to Sunday school. And we carry our friends to Jesus when we spend time praying for them. Every time you lift up a friend of yours in prayer, whether it's a saved friend who just needs help or whether it's a lost friend and we're praying for their soul that they would be right with God. When we do those things, it's as if we're carrying people to Jesus. Here's what the old Presbyterian preacher, maybe you've heard of him, J. Vernon McGee said. He said, what we need in the church today is stretcher bearers. Men and women with that kind of faith to go out and to bring in the unsaved so that they hear the gospel. He goes on to say, there are many people today who are paralyzed with a palsy of sin, a palsy of indifference, or a palsy of prejudice. A great many people are not going to come into the church where the gospel is preached unless you take a corner of the stretcher and bring them in. Jesus saw the faith of the four men who would not let any barrier stand in the way. They brought their friends to Jesus. Y'all, we got friends, sons and daughters, grandkids, nieces, nephews, folks that we need to grab the corner of their stretcher because there is some spiritual paralysis in their life where they can't feel and they can't move. They need us to bring them to Jesus. That's what a good friend does. Let me share with you a second subject. That's the first subject, Christian friendship. Another one even more prominent in this story is the subject of childlike faith. Childlike faith. In the faith of these four friends and in the faith of the crippled man himself, I believe we see a childlike faith. Jesus said something about a childlike faith in Matthew 18. There was a story at which 
the disciples came to Jesus and they asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus called to himself a little child and he put the child in the midst of them and he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A few features of a childlike faith we would do well to note and to emulate. Number one, a childlike faith is unashamed. We're not embarrassed by our spiritual life. We don't apologize for our faithfulness to church and to worship and for service. We don't go out in the public and hide that part of ourselves that's devoted to Jesus because we're afraid someone might think we're a goody two-shoes. No, we're unashamed. These five men would do anything to get to Jesus. And they didn't care who saw them. They were unashamed. Let's just be honest. Digging a hole through somebody's roof and dropping your friend down through the hole, that's pretty redneck, am I right? They were unashamed. Most people picture the scene like this. It was probably a small home because there was no courtyard mentioned. It probably had a flat roof. Homes in this time commonly had a staircase on the outside of the building. And so they carried their friend up the stairs to the roof. And it was a very primitive roof, right? Maybe some beams every few feet, some straw, some mud, some leaves stitched together, hopefully to keep the moisture out. And so they dig a hole Imagine Jesus. Okay, everyone, it's a standing room only crowd. People spilling out of the doors, the windows. There's nowhere else where, whereby they can get to Jesus. But they made a way. Debris starts falling down and people look up. And here's these rednecks letting their friend down. Maybe there was some, it was probably Peter's house. Remember Peter was a fisherman. Maybe there was some ropes nearby and they said, here, tie rope to the corner of the stretcher. And they looked, they didn't know what they were doing. They just knew he needed to get to Jesus. They were unashamed. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this story. He said, Hey, better to come to Christ through the roof than not come at all. Not only was theirs a faith that was unashamed, but it was a faith that was audacious. To have audacity means we believe the impossible. It means we're willing to try when the cynic inside of us says there's not a way. To believe that Jesus could literally, physically, instantaneously heal their friend. Jesus responds to faith. He saw their faith. He healed their friend. Notice he responds to faith. Faith moves. Faith acts. Faith is unashamed. And faith is audacious. Compare the faith of these four friends and this paralytic with the faith of the religious scribes on hand. These guys were thinking, you can't do that. That's not how this, who does this guy think he is? People don't talk like that. Hey, you, 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 you can't talk about forgiven sins like that. May we have a childlike faith. One other feature of a childlike faith, perhaps my favorite of all, it's adventurous. Adventurous. What's an adventure? Well, you don't know what's going to happen next, right? If your life is so predictable and so routine, the same Every day, 
every Sunday, every church meeting. Where's the adventure in that? But a childlike faith just puts it out there. We don't know what's going to happen. Just grab a corner of the stretcher. Let's go. They get there. They can't get in the door. Maybe they looked at a window. They couldn't. What are we going to do? Well, here's a staircase. The adventure continues. They go up the staircase. There's no way in. Let's dig a hole. Now what? They maybe find some rope. You lower him down. Their life of faith was an adventurous faith. One commentator says this bold and venturous action in breaking up the roof and letting all the dust fall about the Savior's head, not fearing that they should provoke him, but trusting in his gentleness and patience, it showed their confidence that they had only to get the man where Christ could see him and good would come of it. Listen, I want my life to be an adventure with Jesus to where we don't, we, we don't know every story on every page. We just follow Jesus one step of faith to the next. Let me share with you a third subject that our passage touches upon, and that is the subject of Christ's forgiveness. We see the faith. Now we see the forgiveness. You'll notice, firstly, the offer of forgiveness Jesus sees their faith, and he looks at a man who's paralyzed, okay? Think with me about this just for a second. They brought the man there because he was crippled. Jesus sees their faith, and he doesn't say, you're no longer crippled. He doesn't say, not first, okay, not the first. The first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. Although everyone else was only looking on the outside and seeing the brokenness there, the paralysis, Jesus looked on the inside and he spoke to that first. Your sins are forgiven. I wonder if those friends thought to themselves, well, 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 that's good. I mean, we're glad for the forgiveness, but can he walk yet? Seems like that's why they brought him. Jesus always sees the deeper issue. Wherever there is sadness in this world, there is sin. Wherever there is brokenness, there is sin. And Jesus deals with that first. Son, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Notice also the condition of forgiveness. The condition is faith. It's always faith. What do we come to Jesus with that he honors? It is not our good works. It is not our name. It is not our reputation. It's not our standing in a community. We come to Jesus with only one thing that he will recognize and honor, and that's faith in him. Trust in Jesus. Romans 4, verse 4 and 5 says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Our faith is that which Jesus responds to. Notice with me also regarding this forgiveness, the offense of forgiveness. Jesus pronounces forgiveness. And as we'll see in a moment, healing as well. And the scribes are mad that Jesus has pronounced forgiveness. They were offended. 
Who, who does he think? Only God can offer forgiveness like this. I think they underestimated exactly who Jesus was because, in fact, he was God. And he offered that forgiveness. Let me just say this little tidbit, and we'll look to our last point together. Brother or sister, you never need anyone else's approval to grow in your walk with Jesus. I don't care who they are or what they think. You don't need anyone to sign off or to nod in agreement to know that you have taken a step with Jesus Christ. All that matters is what he thinks. That's what matters. Let me share with you a final point this morning, and that's another subject that's at least introduced, though not elaborated upon, and that is the subject of a certain future. Now, what do I mean by that? A certain future. Wherever in the Gospels we see a healing like this take place, it's indicative not just of Jesus' power then when it transpired, but of what Jesus has promised that will come at the end of time. Now, this guy was healed, okay? Make no mistake about it. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. He said, son, rise up, take your mat, walk, go home. And it happened. And even though this guy was healed completely, someday off in the future, he still had to die, right? So what about the future after that? Well, let me tell you, Jesus has taken care of that as well. Every time we see a healing like this, it's as if the future where Jesus makes all things right breaks in to the present just for a moment. So we get a glimpse of what eternity with Jesus will be like. Revelation 21 verse 1 says this, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first Heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John the Revelator says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And here is the future. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is the certain future. We catch just a small sliver of a glimpse of it in stories like this, the future that awaits every child of God. The basis of this future is Jesus' authority to forgive sin and his power to provide healing in our life. The response to this future is that of praise. You notice the crowd glorified God and they were amazed for they had never seen anything like this. To think of such a future ought to motivate us to be long-suffering, to endure, to persevere, for we know Jesus has promised good will come to those who wait. Knowing of this future ought to motivate us not only to stick it out as children of God, but ought to motivate us to share with people. Hey, you can have this future as well. Stories like this are stories that are meant to give shape to our lives. We're supposed to be impacted, okay? not just amused or, or entertained at the thought of these sorts of stories. These stories ought to change our life. I ought to live differently tomorrow 
because I know that Jesus can forgive sins and heal people. It ought to make a difference. So here's what I want to do. I want to close our service this morning by inviting you to bow your heads. Go ahead and bow with me right now just so that we can block out all distractions and you can think about Jesus. God's will for every single one of you is that you too would have a childlike faith, that you would live unashamed, adventurously for Jesus, and that you would receive Christ's forgiveness today. So let me ask this question. What's the next step for you? Today, what's the next step? Maybe your next step is simply to ask Jesus for forgiveness. Maybe your next step is to grab the corner of someone's stretcher, to gather up a few friends and say, hey, let's go bring them to Jesus. What is your next step? Would you take our invitation time this morning and would you pray a prayer of commitment that says, today, Jesus, I commit. I will take my next step of faith. If you're here this morning and you've never given your heart to Jesus, today's the day you cast off spiritual paralysis and you begin walking with God. The Bible teaches us that to be saved is so simple. It is but to repent of your sin and trust in Christ, your Savior. He loves you. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. Trust him today. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing. As we now respond to your word, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in our midst today? In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? The invitation has been given. The altars are open. You come as the Lord leads.